Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Airport Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jacobson, as always presented by Lou Makers Wildlife Management. Uh, today is episode 20, and our guest is Paul Curtis, a um, professor from Cornell University who is in charge of the Damage Management Program. Um, wow, a lot of good content in this episode. We talk about um, you know, the, the deer population in urban areas, uh, the impact on airports, as well as some other species. So sit back, relax, enjoy today's episode. And as always, we'll see you next time. everybody this is Brett Jacobson uh, host of Airport Wild uh, today is episode 20 and our guest is Paul Curtis from Cornell University how you doing Paul I'm doing good today good good uh, I know briefly we touched that you're in Florida uh, really jealous about that obviously as you know we're getting pounded up here with uh, with snow uh, what's the weather like down there right now I don't even want to see if you open your window, though. <laughs> uh, bright sunshine and 65 out right now. We got the tail end of the cold front that hit you guys, and it cooled us down from the mid 70s last week. Nice. Okay. Well, we're uh, I think we're steady at about 21 degrees. So uh, you know that's awesome. Uh, so Paul, obviously um, you've been at Cornell University for how long now? Over 31 years. Okay, and um, you're the wildlife specialist. Uh, for the Department of Natural Resources, uh, and you also uh, head up the, the damage management program, correct? That's correct. Okay. Uh, give us a little insight on, uh, on your background, um, where you went to college, how you landed at Cornell, and, um, and we'll go from there. All right. Uh, I've got a master's degree from Colorado State in wildlife biology, PhD from North Carolina State University in zoology, and a bachelor's degree in natural resources from West Virginia University. So I bounced all around the country. Uh, after completing my PhD, uh, interviewed for position at Cornell in 1990 and started there then and helped develop the wildlife damage management program for Cornell Cooperative Extension. Okay, and uh, what's the enrollment like uh, in that program for you on an annual basis? The enrollment in our program, our undergraduate majors now is in environment and sustainability. It's a change from the old natural resources major. And we get you now around 100 to 120 students enroll each year. I would say there are about 20 maybe of those students who have an interest in wildlife, or I would say more hardcore wildlife types. But since we have a very broad program, it's not the typical fish and wildlife program, we have students that have a lot of other interests also. Okay. And now do you help them kind of hone in on their interests and, and, and kind of steer them in the next direction and the next chapter of, of uh, obviously their, their, their career and education? For those students that are interested in wildlife, I try to advise them, uh, make them aware of professional organizations like the Wildlife Society, help them achieve wildlife certification with the Wildlife Society, if that's their goal. But just, you know, generally try to advise them on academics and uh, uh, career opportunities. Okay. Now, um, 
so my background is not biology, you know, whatsoever. So um, talk to me a little bit about the damage management program. What is, uh, what's kind of the, the keys that you guys focus in on that? Because I know um, you guys do a lot of studies and, you know, you're, you're big on like the impact that, you know, wildlife is having with human interaction, correct? Yes, that's the core of the program, human-wildlife interactions and looking at ways to try to reduce conflicts. I mean, we cover everything from forested landscapes to agriculture to suburban and urban environments. So it just runs the gamut of species, you know, 15, 20 species that we commonly see in and around uh, home landscapes and urban areas that cause conflicts. Yeah, yeah. So um, have you done any of these studies in and around airports? Uh, years ago, I did a study uh, at Broome County Landfill with uh, gulls trying to reduce gull conflicts at uh, Broome County Airport, uh, yeah. but I haven't done any airport work recently. Yeah, so yeah, we obviously, um, um, we're seeing a lot, I'm sure you could speak on this. I mean, you've been in the, you've been in the industry for 30 plus years here, so um, man, land development. We are uh, we are not doing <laughs> we're not doing a too too good of a job of uh, providing habitat for you know uh, some of these wildlife species to uh, to kind of roam free um, you know with with a lot of our our airports that we that we uh, service and that listen to this podcast you know um, that's one of the the battles that they that they fight. Kind of speak upon that as far as what you've seen over the last 30 years, probably the big difference between now and, and when you started. Yeah, as far as airports concerns, everybody's got concerns with Canada geese. You know, they're sure. a big bird, you have a collision with a plane, you're gonna have problems in lots of cases. And goose, Canada goose populations, resident geese numbers have just soared dramatically over the last three decades. I would say in the <clears throat> late 1980s, the bulk of the geese in the Atlantic Flyway were the migrant birds that nest up in Canada and uh, come south in the fall and go north in the spring, uh, winter in Chesapeake Bay, Carolinas. But over the last 30 years, that's about flip-flop completely. And the majority of the birds in the Atlantic Flyway now are resident or local breeding geese. And we've done everything we can to just about create perfect habitat for them. They love mowed lawns near water. And, Look at the corporate parks, the oh, yeah. public parks, and everything else that we've created that's uh, just ideal habitat for geese. And if you go and look at the, uh, the bird count data at the Cornell Lab Ornithology and look at uh, goose breeding over the last uh, three decades, you can see that you know geese have been in the Lower Hudson Valley, Long Island, at high numbers since the, the late 80s. But there are a lot of places in upstate where they weren't all that common. But now they've essentially saturated all the breeding habitat in New York State. Uh, about anywhere you've got water and grass, you find resident geese nesting nowadays. And that creates all sorts of conflict for landscape managers, airports, and, and others involved with goose management. Yeah, we're. Uh, I was on a call today, and um, um, two of our wildlife biologists uh, they did a Zoom meeting with a couple HOAs and talking about techniques for, you know, dispersing geese. And uh, one of the one of the funny stories that came up was uh, uh, this 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 woman that was on the call, one of the head of the HOAs or H, uh, HOAs, um, was spraying them with a garden hose. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, but they but one of their topics was they were talking about 
you know, planting like natural grass and, and some other favorable uh, habitat for these geese, but at the same time, trying to, <laughs> trying to keep them out of their yards. Uh, so I'm not really sure how that's going to work out. <laughs> Yeah, Canada geese are one of the species that it's really difficult to manage them on an individual landowner scale, other than maybe some simple fencing or exclusion along a pond if you don't want them just walking out in your yard. Otherwise, they really need to be managed at the community scale and uh, go with a concerted effort. Sometimes the uh, landowners or uh, wildlife control specialists can get uh, permits uh, to add eggs or boil eggs and uh, try to actually reduce abundance. And in critical situations like around airports, sometimes roundups are needed where you get together with uh, uh, DEC or USDA Wildlife Services staff and a community or contract out and actually do a roundup and a removal with the appropriate uh, federal and state permits to try to reduce conflicts in your airports. Yeah, now how, how, um, how in tune are you with, you know, like some of the hunting regulations in, in New York State? Because um, one of the things that I've been um, kind of researching and talking to, my background, I, you know, I do quite a bit of, uh, of bird hunting myself. Um, you know, the, 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 bag, the daily bag limits for ducks and geese have dropped drastically over the last five years. Um, is that a reflection of anything that you guys are seeing? Yeah, I think the bag limit for Canada geese are going to drop to one, one bird in the bag. Yeah, that's the rumor mill. Yeah, and, and the reason is the Atlantic population, the migratory birds have had a couple of tough nesting years with heavy snow and late ice in winter, and uh, they're in trouble. I mean, you know, we need to relax uh, the hunting mortality on, on migratory waterfowl. But these local breeding geese, they're not impacted by that. I mean, and they just keep expanding in numbers. So it's contradictory. We see more geese all the time, but yet hunting becoming more and more restricted because of uh, trouble with the migratory birds. What do you think, you think there's any kind of, uh, any balance to be reached with, you know, like obviously our industry, you know, we're supposed to prevent, you know, um, human interaction with, you know, wildlife and, and especially with aircrafts, uh, with bird strikes. Um, is there any, you think there's any balance to be, to be had with uh, the populations? Well, the challenge with Canada geese is they all look pretty much alike. And once the flocks start mixing in, you can't tell the residents from the migrants. And so that's why you've got the early Canada goose season in September before the migrants come back down here from the north. And if we do a really good job during that early Canada goose season, we can uh, get at some of those resident birds in, in some cases. The problem is that they're just so abundant right now. And a lot of people don't like to hunt geese in September. I mean, you're in your shirt sleeves and it's hot and the dog gets thirsty and everything. So, you know, it's not as, as fun as, you know, more traditional goose yeah. hunting in the fall and the winter. It's also really hard to get permission, uh, you know, because obviously they don't, they don't sit around. They, they, they move from field to field to field and farmers and, and, and things like that, especially up here in, in upstate where our resident population, especially around the Figure Lakes region and the Rochester area where I'm at, you know, it's it's pretty, the resident geese population is pretty booming, but it's definitely a challenge. And, and what I've seen is there's less and less, you know, pressure. When I, when I was in college, I actually guided, and that's how I paid for college. Um, and you could, yeah, they, anywhere you went, you could get permission or, you know, there was, there's plenty of, plenty of birds to, to, to be had, but 
now what we're seeing um, in our area is one, you can't get permission and two, the hunting pressure is just decreased immensely, especially, I'm sure you can, you, you know, shed some light on that over the last 30 years. Uh, hunting licenses are way down. Obviously COVID brought it back a little bit, but. Yeah, we see a little blip now with increase in license sales, but you're right, the long-term trend is, is downward over the last three decades. I used to hunt uh, resident geese on a horse farm just south of Rochester. They had a pond on it and that was fantastic. I mean, like I say, there were plenty of birds around, uh, but over time there was more and more development around the farm and finally the, the landowner just wasn't comfortable with us having shooting shotguns uh, close to, to, to the neighborhood yeah. as we got more developed. So we, we lost access to that spot. Yeah, and that's that's also another big big trend too that you, that you see, you know, because we're trying to fight this population battle and this battle against Canada geese to make, you know, obviously airports safer. But, you know, you, you see them, you know, basically feeding and, and, and roosting and nesting right in a housing track, right? You know, rather than going out into, you know, agricultural land or ag fields, they don't really have to go very far to, to find what they need, especially on an airport that typically will have, you know, a stormwater retention pond or a swamp nearby. And then obviously full flush, you know, grass all over uh, the airfields. Right, about 15 years or so ago, we did a hazing study on Canada geese in the Rochester metropolitan area. And we were trying dogs and uh, motorized boats and all sorts of different things to see what works. And we captured, banded, and radio collared a bunch of birds to see how their behavior changed when we did intensive hazing day and night. And we learned pretty quickly that those local breeding birds knew every pond with a 20 kilometer radius of where we captured them. And we could spend all day chasing them. I mean, they knew, you know, 15, 20 different ponds that they had access to. And not every landowner is going to give you permission. We found about half the time a landowner was fine with us coming in and hazing birds. And about the other half the time, the landowner didn't want us on their property. And so the geese always had safe havens, and we could do a real good job on the places we had access. But mm -hmm. the geese would just fly across the road to a different pond and then hang out all day, wait for us to leave, and be right back into their normal routine. It's just tough to break that behavior. Yeah, uh, they are resilient. So you know, let's uh, let's continue on this here. Um, what other species are you seeing? You know that uh, I know I know you've done a, a huge urban deer study recently, right? What other species are you seeing kind of, you know, with, with land development and obviously housing tracks going up all over the, the country, kind of seeing, you know, that population still hold steady yet moving into these urban areas? Yeah, in, in urban areas, there's a handful of species that tend to do really well. Uh, we've already mentioned white-tailed deer, Canada geese, uh, things like gray squirrels do really well in urban areas, raccoons. Uh, gulls are doing really well. The long-term trend in gull populations on the Great Lakes, I think they pretty much stabilized now, but over the last 30 years, there have been definite increases in gull populations, much of the Great Lakes and Finger Lakes areas. And so these are, you know, very common and abundant species that we see in and around airports and in suburban areas all the time. And even sometimes need to manage deer on airstrips when they get access in areas that you don't obviously don't want a deer to collide with a plane anymore than colliding with a car on the roadway. Yeah, absolutely. It, it tends to make a mess. Um, <laughs> and uh, definitely, uh, you know, um, when one of those, 
um, one of those hazards happen like that, you know, um, uh, airports, obviously, they have to uh, immediately do a wildlife hazard assessment. Um, it's a qualifying event. So um, nobody wants to go through all that and, and do all that. Um, what are you seeing as far as um, what are you seeing as far as kind of the population control with whitetail deer in urban areas? Because um, I know obviously it's, you know, it's a it's a double edged sword because they are you know, beautiful creatures and whatnot, but man, they can probably wreak some havoc, not only on an airfield, but also in, you know, a, a neighborhood. Yeah, deer have uh, a number of different potential conflicts. Uh, you've got landscape plant damage people aren't happy with. Deer vehicle accidents are a big one from a health and safety standpoint during the fall. You've got expanding tick populations in Lyme and ehrlichiosis and other tick-borne diseases associated with deer abundance, it's very clear in areas where you have very high deer abundance, you often also have uh, high incidence of Lyme and other tick-borne diseases. And so these are all issues that people in suburban areas face with deer. We did a fawn survival study up at Fort Drum in northern New York uh, uh, the last five years, looking at population growth, uh, what causes fawn mortality, how do urban deer uh, behavior and survival different from what we see with typical more rural deer. And what we found is in suburban areas, survivorship is higher, which is not surprising. They're not as heavily hunted and fawning rates are really high. We have some of our adult does producing triplets in years. Almost all the adult does are producing twins. And we even see a percentage of our fawns per have a single fawn their year of birth. So reproductive rates are really high because these animals are excellent condition, feeding on landscape shrubs and ornamentals and everything else you find in suburbia. And so that makes control that much more difficult when you've got a, a high survivorship and a high population growth curve. We've done studies with fertility control. Uh, we tried that out on campus looking at surgical sterilization. We were able to stabilize deer herd with surgical sterilization, but we couldn't reduce it. Uh, what we found is too much immigration from uh, abundant deer in nearby areas that just came into our, our, our core area to, and uh, hurt the sterilization efforts. Over the last five plus years, we've been doing uh, deer removal at night with over baited sites with archery equipment on a deer damage permit from DEC. And even with that, we've been able to cut numbers down, but we still can't reach our goal density. Uh, they're getting really, really difficult because these deer start to get more shy around bait sites at night. And even with archery equipment, they get to be tough to remove. So uh, things like regular hunting, it helps, uh, can help control deer densities in more rural areas. But again, in suburbia, when you start getting high housing densities and smaller woodlots, access to deer is the problem. And they can, deer can do very well in suburban areas with limited wooded space as long as they've got uh, protection and plenty of food. Yeah, that's the, I mean, you know, kind of the, obviously the, the same point that you made about geese, they really don't have to go very far to find what they need to survive and, you know, and with, without hunting pressure and whatever uh, and whatnot, um, you know, yeah, I'm sure their, their fertility rate is through the roof. Um, is that, does that play a part in fertility rate? Maybe like hunting pressure or like stress on the herd? 
Yeah, the hunting pressure really doesn't play a part for telluride. That's more habitat related. And so again, as long as they're good food resources, uh, the uh, deer are gonna have better fat reserves and uh, litter size and a lot of large mammals is tied to fat reserves. And so, and again, winter is a big thing. We're having a, a little bit more difficult winter than we've seen in typical years right now in upstate New York, but it started late. I mean, we didn't really see much snow on the ground in December and early January. It's just been in the last few weeks we've been getting hammered. And if you're going to see deer exhaust their fat reserves, they're going to need uh, constant snow on the ground for, you know, 30, 60 days before they really uh, uh, get hurt in their fat reserves. So unless the snow persists until April, probably going to have very limited impact on, on deer mortality this winter. Okay. Um, what are you seeing as far as like any invasive species that's thriving, uh, maybe in and around airports or urban zones? Uh, I know obviously they kind of go hand in hand because it's not like, you know, airports are out in the middle of nowhere. They're pretty much butted right up to, uh, <laughs> to cities and whatnot. So uh, is there any invasive species that you're seeing make a, make a, you know, sizable charge here, I guess you could say? Uh, many are, but not from a wildlife standpoint. You know, you've got to, you know, a lot of uh, invasive fish, things like round gobies and things like that that are really impacting the Finger Lakes now. And you've got invasion, invasive insects like hemlock woolly adelgid and spotted lanternfly that are coming in and uh, really starting to impact forest or emerald ash borer. But from a vertebrate standpoint, it's, we just don't see the same type of impacts that we typically do with, with insects and fish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, the Golby one is huge. Uh, you know, obviously me being on the, in the Finger Lakes region and right on the shores of uh, Lake Ontario, I, you know, I can't, I, let's put it this way. When I was a kid, I, I didn't even know they existed, whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, within like a two year span, that's all you're catching pretty much, uh, uh, especially in Lake Ontario or the St. Lawrence Seaway. Yeah, the gobies didn't even exist here a few years ago. It's just right. in recent years they've come into Oneida Lake and the Finger Lakes and Lake Ontario. But boy, they certainly came in with a vengeance. They like to say they're everywhere now. Yeah, how, how, how did that happen, if you don't mind me asking? I don't know the history of gobies. I'd have to check with some of our fishery specialists to see how they yep. were initially introduced. But boy, they've sure, certainly taken over. Um, so I know we were talking earlier, um, you had mentioned um, a goal, st uh, studying goals in, on landfills. Uh, can you touch base on that just a little bit? Because, you know, one of the things that obviously, you know, is, is a big wildlife concern is if you ever go to one of those landfills, it definitely looks like a Alfred Hitchcock movie. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, what we did was we tracked goals and uh, color marked them on uh, at Broome County Landfill. We wanted to look at, you know, what percentage of birds were repeat offenders back in the same place every day, try to track them and see where they were roosting. And we learned fairly quickly that a big bulk of the gulls that were using Broome County landfill were actually roosting on the Finger Lakes and making a daily flight from the Finger Lakes all the way down to uh, the Broome County landfill, which I can't remember how many kilometers, it was over 50 kilometers one day, each day. And uh, some of those same color marked gulls uh, didn't always go to the Broome County landfills. We had some of our birds show up and get reported from Seneca Meadows landfill over in Seneca County. So these birds, again, 
the Finger Lakes or, and other big bodies of water are safe roosting areas for gulls and that they probably know every landfill in a 50 to 75 kilometer radius around those lakes and, and head out and that's where they forage during the day because they can get food easily. Well, um, what kind of management techniques uh, did you guys take a look at or, um, you know, kind of em employ there? Yeah, the thing that worked best for us at the landfill was just keeping uh, pyrotechnic equipment on the, on the operator's tractors. You know, they have those compactors and tractors that they use to, to move and, and press down the, the dump material. And so actually during the day when gold numbers are built up, uh, we give the operators uh, the ability to just jump out and fire a few bird scare rounds out and that would disperse the goals for a little while. And then the other thing that was really important was uh, capping the area when they finished. They'd often finish like 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. And so they really need to put a, a few inches of dirt fill over top of the material so the goals didn't have easy access to it after they left work for the day. And by doing those two things, we were able to reduce the number of goals that were using the landfill, but obviously not eliminate. There's always going to be some there, but it cut numbers down quite substantially by doing those two things. What are some of the, the risks of, you know, let's say a landfill is doing nothing? What are some of the, you know, what are, what are some of the, the risks that involve uh, having, you know, goals just run amok? Well, goals are running amok. Uh, there's obviously uh, potential for spread of disease that you would get with high, any high density bird situation. In Broome County, it was particularly problematic because the Nanticoke Sanitary Landfill is right close to Broome County Airport and the gulls are right in the, the flight path sometimes when depending on wind direction or what, where those planes are taking off. So they really needed to keep numbers down to reduce uh, potential conflicts with aircraft. Yeah, yeah, we definitely see, there's definitely a correlation with that, um, with the flight pass. And, you know, it's, it's very common to kind of, to see a landfill not too far from an airport. Um, and I don't know why those things get co-located, but it's, it seems frequent. Yeah, you know, um, it's kind of like putting a cornfield in the middle of a airstrip. You're just you're just asking for it. You I know? suspect what it is is it's cheap land, not too far from a major community, and so they need a lot of land for an airport. They need a lot of land for a landfill, so they're looking for access to cheap land, and they you know, somehow end up at the, close to the same spot. Yeah. You know, it's one, I guess it's just one of those, uh, yeah, I guess it is what it is kind of thing. But um, so let's shift gears here because I know we talked about this too. Um, this time of year, you know, um, like I was just watching the news, for example, and I just uh, did a whole story about um, crow management in inner cities um, because, you know, up here, especially in, in, in the northern states, um, <clears throat> you know, huge murders of crows just congregate and roost in and around downtown cities. Um, what, uh, give me kind of your thoughts on, you know, some management practices or if you, you've done any studies um, in, in terms of crow management. Yeah, I've done studies, but uh, from what I understand and talking with other biologists and things I've read, it seems that the crows are flocking these these more urban areas for protection from predators and for thermal regulation. And we, at least on campus and other crow, winter crow roost I visited, often there's evergreen trees involved. So it's something with a, a denser canopy in many cases that might provide some wind protection. 
during the winter months. So a couple of things that could be done are things like thinning trees out to try to reduce the, uh, the amount of protection they get from the canopy. I've heard of studies using lighting in some areas to try to light those areas up in, ur in urban environments to make uh, crows potentially uh, more susceptible to nighttime predators such as great horned owls or owls that might come in, into the site. So those are a couple things that can be done. Uh, people have had good success dis dispersing crow roost with uh, both lasers at night and pyrotechnics. Uh, the problem is if you disperse them, you don't know where those crows are going and it may end up in a, in a spot that's worse than where they originally were. But uh, that's always a chance you take when you move birds around. You try to disrupt one, one roost and hope they go somewhere else where it's not gonna cause problems. Yeah, I know a lot of, um, you know, a lot of cities are, are spending, you know, a pretty good chunk of change on crow management, um, especially with the cleanup. Um, you know, you get thousands upon thousands of crows roosting, you know, in, in, um, in trees in downtown. They leave quite a mess behind, huh? <laughs> That's definitely the case. And, yeah, again, it's, there are a lot of them are spending money, too, on just, you know, the management and control efforts. you got to have uh, folks that are specialized in bird control and have the appropriate equipment and training to come in and do that type of work at night. Yeah. What do you see, because obviously you have, you know, a lot more experience than, than, than I do. Um, what do you see the big difference, you know, maybe in, in the, the amount of attention or maybe even the amount of money spent in wildlife management, maybe from like the 80s, 90s to, to, to now? Yeah, starting in the 90s, uh, wildlife damage management was really a huge growth area in the wildlife profession. And we saw a lot of things change over the last three decades uh, in terms of uh, training opportunities and courses and uh, professional associations, things like uh, uh, NUCOA, the National Wildlife Control Operators Association, development of a National Wildlife Control Training Program, Lots of things have happened, and I think we're at the point now where that, you know, dramatic growth has stopped. Things have leveled off uh, a bit more now, but we saw really a real growth in the in the wildlife control industry uh, from the 90s into into the 2000s, and, and and again, so there are many people that really saw this as a potential career path. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's kept you employed, so. <laughs> Um, what, um, what do you see right now, it, you know, like, obviously you have, you know, like I said, tons of experience. What's one of the studies or one of the, you know, programs that you, uh, you're a part of that you can kind of reflect on as like a huge success story, um, with maybe either managing a population or, you know, providing, you know, the tools and resources to kind of, um, you know, steer somebody in the right direction. I wish I could highlight success stories. I think what we're doing is learning how difficult it is to manage some of these urban species that are resilient, and have uh, high abundance and high population growth. I wish I could say deer management is a success story after working on it for 30 years, but I, I won't say we're there yet. Uh, we've still got more deer issues and concerns than we know how to deal with. Uh, with tick-borne diseases, you know, vehicle accidents, other things that we've mentioned. I'd like to say Canada goose management's a success story. Well, at least in the eastern U.S., uh, populations are saturated now, and they're not growing the way they were a decade or so ago. Uh, but there's no shortage of goose conflicts. There, 
most of these species that we're dealing with are management success stories. And geese, uh, again, were really low in numbers at the turn of, of the century in the 1900s. Deer were non-existent in central New York in the early 1900s. No, people don't believe that now, but uh, uh, Tompkins County, where I'm from, in the early 1900s was 5% forested. Now it's about 65% forested. That's part of the reason we've got deer and turkeys and other species that are doing really well. So a lot of these species that we see now that are causing conflicts and are, have concerns about local overabundance were all species that were intensively managed and in very low numbers uh, only a century ago. And we've done a great job and had success bringing them back. And now we've got to deal with the success we've created. What do you think one of the main factors in all that success is, um, you know, with bringing some of these species back? The primary factor is changes in habitat. Again, going from 5% forested because of agriculture and forestry practices in the early 1900s to 65, 70% forested, as we see many of our counties in central and southern New York State now. Uh, that's just created habitat. A second factor is game laws and regulations. Uh, I mean, we, New York State DEC and other state wildlife agencies have done a very good job of uh, managing wildlife to increase abundance uh, during the 50s, 60s, 70s. And, and again, now we're having to deal with that successful management effort. Yeah. All right. So let's talk COVID. <laughs> <laughs> we have to. <laughs> uh, I would love to just not talk about COVID-19 ever again. Um, you know, when I accepted this position, um, you know, the, the one of the allure, uh, obviously, you know, hosting a podcast is always great, but, you know, I really wanted to travel and, you know, um, and kind of, you know, see some of the work that we do hands-on. Um, that's gone. Uh, <laughs> conferences and things like that are gone. How's COVID kind of impacted not only your life, but, um, you know, maybe the program at, at Cornell here? Yeah, uh, like you, I'm hunkered down and I've uh, been teaching remotely since last March. It's really affected our student summer internship programs. Usually I've got half a dozen or more students in the field during the summer months helping with different research projects and uh, this past summer we had zero, so that's put more burden on the permanent staff and technicians to try to fill the gaps to still collect data needed for long-term data sets uh, without student help. We're hoping we can get students back uh, in our field stations this year uh, under new COVID guidelines and uh, procedures that that's still in process and yet to be approved for the summer. I'm cautiously optimistic we'll have at least some students in the field, but you know, COVID really really impacted us and like everything else just processes slow down for things like licenses and approvals and all those type of things just take longer than they used to because people are working remotely and working from home and you just don't have the staffing capabilities you used to have yeah you know and it's such a I don't know, it's such an aggravating topic to discuss, right? Because we, you know, we have all, at this point, we all know somebody, um, you know, who's who's come down with COVID uh, or been infected by COVID. And, you know, um, it, it is real, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, everybody's life is pretty much just put on hold. 
for the last, uh, I mean, going on a year now. Yeah, we've continued to try to maintain our field research projects and we've been uh, successful so far, but really changed things. Like instead of three of us getting together and have taking one vehicle out, now we have three times the cost because we've got to drive in three separate vehicles and yeah. wear a mask and glove while we're in the field to meet COVID guidelines. So it's it just added more time and more cost to everything that we do. Yeah, you know, it was really eerie too in the beginning, right? So, you know, if we're talking about airport wildlife management, you know, there's no planes taking off. Uh, <laughs> you know, at some of these major airports, um, there's just not a lot of flights. So, um, kind of, you know, uh, yeah, it kind of, <laughs> it, it was very eerie, let's put it that way. When I, you know, when I came on board, um, you know, which was, you know, in the summer, um, yeah, didn't see a whole lot of planes taken off and, and and whatnot. But with that, though, kind of a unique opportunity arose because it gave more incentive for wildlife species to to kind of come in and take over airports. Yeah, well, it's not just airports. I get anecdotal reports and phone calls and emails all the time about wildlife that people usually don't see, but now they're very comfortable in suburban areas deer out feeding in the daytime in, in their yards and other species that, you know, might be less visible with people not being out and about, they get more comfortable in a hurry. Yeah, one of the one of the major topics of conversation right now, because, you know, it's mating season for coyotes. Everybody's seeing coyotes and, and uh, especially in urban areas and people freak out over them. Yeah, that's a I can understand the concern, but it's not a justified concern. We did an urban coyote study in Westchester County down in southeast of New York a few years ago and had 40 radio collared coyotes that we tracked around. And we were going to test, had uh, ideas we were going to test all these non-lethal control methods and this and that, resolve coyote conflicts. And only one of our 40 collared coyotes ever got in any trouble and only lasted two weeks right this time of year during mating season it started cavorting with pet dogs and so besides that they just were very comfortable in urban areas but they stayed mostly to natural habitats ate a natural diet a lot of deer particularly roadkill deer small rodents, yeah. and rarely got into trouble so the perception of coyotes being a problem animal even though it sometimes happens is a lot more than that, what we actually see once we start radio calling animals and following them around yeah, so um, what we, you know, what I've seen specifically, right? So, you know, obviously with airports, right? You know, you, you if you just picture it, it's just wide open area. And, you know, what coyotes thrive, coyotes and foxes, you know, skunks, they thrive on. I mean, it's like a buffet for them, realistically. Mm -hmm. um, the, have you seen a huge increase in coyote populations around say landfills and, and airports in the, in the last 10, 15 years? Nobody really has a good measure of coyote abundance. I mean, that's one of the most difficult animals to try to sense. Uh, typical, typical mark recapture type efforts don't work. Coyotes are extremely hard to catch. Also, they tend to be a little bit shy around camera traps. So even if you've got a sample of mark camera, marked animals camera trapping doesn't work as well as you might think it would like camera trapping is great for sensing bears and other species but it doesn't work 
as well as we would hope with coyotes. So there's really no good sense to it. Uh, DEC was tracking uh, coyote complaints. They've done that since 2005. They've got a standard coyote complaint database. And uh, some years we, reports are up, but again, using complaints to try to get at abundance, there's a lot of problems with that. So our coyote populations up, they may be, we really can't say for sure, but you know, certain years conflicts definitely, reported conflicts definitely get to be up and most of the conflicts are instance between uh, coyotes and small dogs. That's the thing that's most likely to get reported. Yeah, I was, um, I was actually, I think I was listening to a, to a podcast or, um, and, and somebody had brought up, you know, or maybe I was reading something on Facebook, an article on Facebook, but somebody had brought up, you know, coyotes have always been here, but we just keep reducing habitat. So we just see them more now. Well, coyotes haven't always been here. That's uh, what that's the first thing that came to my mind was, mm, that doesn't yeah, sound right, but. Yeah, coyotes, uh, at least the Eastern coyote we know today came in to Northern New York State across St. Lawrence River, probably in the mid 1930s based on uh, trapping records and trapper observations. And then they came south from the St. Lawrence Valley down both sides of the Adirondacks to the Hudson Valley and into the Finger Lakes. And then uh, eventually filled in the whole central part of the state. There was a second incursion of coyotes that are slightly genetically different that came in across uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania into western New York State uh, or by the Buffalo area. And uh, those populations have, you know, mixed now. And essentially we have an eastern coyote that's common throughout the state except for Long Island. Uh, but, you know, prior to the 1930s, you really don't have good records that coyotes ever existed in New York State. Yeah, you know, there's a bunch of uh, news stories that I see, and I think there was on, on our local news network. Um, you know, they're just interviewing people in, in houses and stuff, talking about how, you know, coyotes are creeping in in their backyard. And, you know, they even talk about safety concerns with humans and coyotes. How often do you even hear or see any kind of like coyote attack on a, on a human being? Can't be much. It's rare, but happens. Uh, usually if there's an attack on a human, most often it's a rabid animal. And uh, particularly in southeastern New York, again, Westchester County area in particular, seems to be, they get their share of coyote attacks if you look back through the media. Uh, usually rabid animals attack a, a person or two and the animals eventually trapped or shot. There is uh, one human related fatality from a coyote attack. A pair of coyotes attacked a, a woman walking in the park. I think it was in New Brunswick, Canada about five, six years ago and actually killed her. That's the only uh, fatality from a coyote attack on people that I'm aware of. Uh, but uh, where coyotes become common in urban areas, uh, they, they will attack particularly children. There's quite a few reports of that in, the, in uh, Western literature. Coyotes have been abundant around the LA area since the 1970s. And so some of the early uh, human attacks that are in the literature uh, from, are from the West in California. Have you seen any, um, you know, obviously, is there, is there a certain species that, that stands out maybe in your mind that is, you know, on the up while maybe there's another one on the down? 
as far as population or, or just, you know, move me, me even moving out of the area. Yeah, one of the species that I work with that are in real trouble are colonial water birds. And I don't know how familiar you are with them. Uh, again, gulls are, uh, can be considered colonial water birds. They tend to nest on islands and big lakes and reservoirs. Gull populations, like I said, over the last three decades have gone up. They've stabilized now. They don't appear to be growing. At the same time, other colonial water birds, things like common terns, which are state threatened, have continued to decline over time uh, because of competition for nesting space from gulls. Cormorants, another one. Over the 70s, 80s, 90s, double-crested cormorant populations uh, increased dramatically in the Great Lakes, Finger Lakes, Sinaida Lake and started to cause conflicts not only with colonial water birds, but also fisheries impacts with, with walleye and yellow perch on a night lake. And, and so USDA and DC did many years of uh, cormorant management on a night lake and to bring those numbers down to uh, uh, suitable levels in fisheries populations recovery. It's one of the few long-term data sets that show a uh, significant impact of a colonial water bird on a, on a sport fisheries population. Okay. Yeah. Um, one, you know, one thing that I've noticed, um, you know, obviously with Facebook and stuff like that, I'm on a couple different trail camera, um, you know, pages and whatnot, especially up here, like in the, in, in the New York area, a lot more sightings of fishers. Mm -hmm. um, and I had, when I was a kid growing up, I, I had no idea what they were. Uh, and then they start popping up, you know, probably five, 10 years ago on trail cameras. Um, shed some light on you know what's 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 up with them and why are they making such a huge uh comeback here yeah both uh seems like fisher and bobcat populations are expanding in central and western new york and you're right about uh 10 years ago it was rare to see a fisher on a trail camera in at least in the ithaca area we saw them oh boy we were all excited yeah absolutely and, uh, but now they seem to be much more commonplace we we see them fairly frequently on our trail cameras and, and once in a while we even get a, a bobcat photo. And again, bobcats are fairly, uh, I wouldn't uncommon in that area and they, their populations seem to be increasing, expanding. I think it's related to these long-term habitat changes again. They both species that require forested habitats. And as we've come back from the early 1900s with almost no forest to nearly 70% forested and much of central New York, these populations are responding. Also, I think part of it too is that, uh, you know, the number of, of fur trappers, just like hunters, is on long-term decline. So we see fewer and fewer people that are out uh, from year to year uh, recreationally fur trapping, much less than we did three decades ago. Okay. Um, what do you see the, the, the future of your program at, at Cornell um, over the next 10 years or so? Where do you see it going or do you see any, you know, industry trends that are uh, maybe going to steer you guys in, in, in a certain direction? Well, our biggest challenge right, continues to be deer management. You know, again, with all the research that's been done on deer and all the money spent on deer over the last 50 years, you wouldn't think deer would be a priority, but still in these urban suburban areas where deer tend to be overabundant, we just really don't have a good set of management tools. They're not available for hunters. Hunters can't get access to them. Fertility control is too expensive and not all effective. So that means it's going to be some type of uh, usually a culling program, removal program uh, for drums trying to address uh, 
atmospheric concerns right now, and they've been contracting with the USDA the last couple of years, and they're uh, testing out a culling program in their 8,000-acre cantonment area to try to get deer abundance back in check, particularly in their bat conservation areas. And so uh, I see for the foreseeable future, deer are going to be an issue. Uh, we've got a program looking at deer impacts to forest uh, regeneration. That's a huge issue all across New York and, and the other northeastern states. Uh, deer are abundant enough even in hunted areas where they selectively browse oaks and maples and other uh, trees that are really important in our forest overstory. In order to get sufficient oak and maple regeneration, usually areas in uh, central and southern New York State need to be fenced to exclude deer. Uh, you get more than probably 12, 15 deer per square mile on the landscape, which most of New York's well above that, uh, you're just not going to see uh, suitable oak and maple regeneration in most areas. Yeah, it's definitely a, it's definitely a, you know, a cause for concern and, and worrisome. Um, what do you think, I mean, have you seen a, an increase in enrollment in Cornell and your program uh, as obviously these things continue to be more talked about and, and, and popular? Yeah, our enrollment's capped, so we haven't seen huge increases. Okay. But, uh, with our environment sustainability major, numbers have slowly uh, uh, crept up over the last few years and uh, uh, we have no problem meeting our cap. Unfortunately, we don't have enough slots for all the students that would like to come to Cornell. Okay. Yeah, when you uh, when are you back in Cornell? <laughs> uh, next month I'll be back. There you go. All right. We'll make sure you uh, bring some lunch. Start next week, and uh, um, over the next week or so, I'll be traveling back. I go through quarantine procedures and everything else. Continue to teach remotely, but uh, I'll be back in the field in April. Have you seen a big difference in uh, in, in uh, kind of the? Uh, I don't want to say success, but. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I, I have, I have uh, children of my own that have been uh, uh, doing this remote learning and it's been a struggle. Have you been seeing the same thing on the college levels? Absolutely. I think most of us as faculty hate teaching remotely. Uh, I was teaching my spring wildlife course last spring and had to cancel most of my labs after mid-March. Just, you can't do a lab over Zoom. There's no way to do the hands-on stuff you need to show students uh, over a computer screen. Uh, lectures weren't okay. Uh, I wouldn't say great, but okay. But it, there's just nothing like being in the classroom with students. And hopefully, enough people will get vaccinated this spring and summer. Next fall will be more normal again on campus. Okay. All right. We'll let you go on this since it's Super Bowl week. What's your prediction here? Hey, go Bucks. I'm in Sarasota, right, right <laughs> near Tampa. I think everybody down here has got their go Bucks gear on. Yeah, what's going to be the score? What do you think? Oh, I'm, since they're playing on home field, I'm going to give them, say, 31-28, uh, slight oh, edge. There you we'll go. See. I like it. Paul, that was confident, and uh, I, I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. This was very informative. Um, I mean, I learned a lot. And uh, so I really appreciate you coming on. Um, if some of our listeners have any questions, uh, what's the best way to maybe get in contact with you? Yeah, with these times of COVID, the best way is just uh, send an email and I'll try to follow up as soon as I can. You know, my email address is my initials, PDC, the number one at cornell.edu. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, uh, I encourage anybody here in this, uh, obviously reach out to Paul. 
you're a wealth of knowledge. Uh, um, and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure down the road we'll, we'll probably do this again. All right. I appreciate All right. Uh, chatting with you today. It was fun. And uh, hopefully the, the listeners learned uh, at least a thing or two along the way. I mean, if they learned anything, it was to put money on the bucks this weekend. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, hey, I, I'm just making a prediction here. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> All right, Paul. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care.